Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. In our last episode with Dr. Gigi Osler, we began to explore the very broad topic of equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI as it's named by some. While our conversation was far ranging and we discussed implications for a number of diverse and marginalized groups deserving representation and inclusion, as Gigi mentioned, much of the origin of this policy change started with calls for gender equity. But as we're going to discuss with more focus today, that word, gender, is very loaded with binary concepts around sexuality and how people have been identified. And yes, I just use the passive voice with intention because at the moment of birth, when, to be clear, a healthcare professional identifies our sexual organs, most of us are given a binary gender label, male or female, and perhaps something pink or blue along with it, which starts so much cultural imprinting and expectations, the do's and don'ts and the rigidity, including how we should dress and look and with whom we should have sex. For many people, that may feel right and how things fit for them. They accept it. For others, however, it may feel like being branded and initiate an ensuing struggle with identity, belonging, and acceptance. And that struggle may bring trauma and hurt. Few in Canada think it absurd that a child grows up to choose or reject who they want to be professionally. But when it comes to gender and sexuality, many of our beliefs come with thousands of years of history, or at least a very narrow Eurocentric history written by heterosexual white men. So today, we will talk about how our health system serves and employs members of our community who identify as two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, or questioning, intersex, asexual. Citing UBC, the placement of the two-spirit or the two-ass first is to recognize that Indigenous people are the first of this land and their understanding of gender and sexuality precedes colonization. The plus is for all the new and growing ways become aware of sexual orientations and gender diversity. To begin this huge conversation, I feel very fortunate to be joined by Beverly Pomeroy. Bev is a queer researcher, an award-winning patient public engagement specialist, and an uninvited settler person on the shared traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Shununaimo territory, also known as Gabriela Island in British Columbia. Bev has a particular interest in justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or JEDI Plus, and has co-developed a trauma and resiliency-informed practice program for research and evaluation, patient public engagement, and quality improvement, a strength-based approach to patient public experience. Bev's unique combination of education, professional experience, and lived experience has exposed them to progressively senior leadership opportunities in a variety of healthcare and research environments from community laboratory services to patient safety and quality improvement. Bev landed a patient-oriented research after her daughter, Sophia, passed away from in 2017 from a rare complex chronic disease at the age of 16. They sit on the board of BC Patient Safety Quality Council Oversight and Advisory, Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research Evidence Alliance, and the Canadian Association of Health Services and Policy. Bev is a co-principal investigator on a number of projects across the country, including the Beyond the Binary and the Intersection of Trauma and Grief. Hi, Bev, and welcome to the HQ. 
Hi, Dale. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast today to have this conversation and help me and others to understand the issues from different perspectives, Bev. Um, so I'm very sensitive to having this conversation with you today from my own position of privilege. Uh, and I'm not an expert in this, nor do I claim the lived experience of you or many others. So perhaps if you're comfortable, may I ask you to frame the context for this conversation today around gender and sexuality and how it fits into EDI. Yeah, I mean, I was really conscious of that too. And I want to start by saying that I'm not an expert. Uh, I am queer, I'm non-gender conforming, queer researcher. And while much of my work uh, tends to focus on equity, diversity, inclusion, my lens still is incredibly narrow when we consider the enormity of identities and intersections within our communities of care. Uh, but for the sake of this conversation, we discussed gender identity and sexuality. Uh, two things, and you mentioned it a little bit in the intro, a principle to keep in mind is that all people have gender identity or identities in a sexual orientation. So just for reference, sex refers to biological and physiological differences between sexes, which if we talk about gender in particular, including chromosomes and, hor and hormones, but gender itself is actually a psychosocial construct. And, you, and again, you, you mentioned it um, at the beginning of your intro, which includes gender identity, but it's important to understand it's how a given society may have different expectations based on a person's gender. And then you add in this piece around sexuality, um, you know, and that's about physical and emotional attraction. So it's really important that for the sake of this conversation, we sort of lay, lay it on those layers. And then how does that fit really into equity, diversity, inclusion in the context of health healthcare? And we know as part of your series, there are longstanding health disparities uh, across underrepresented communities and health in inequities disproportionately impact women, cis and transgender. Um, just something as simple as evidence shows the sex differences in disease risk and health outcomes, uh, also in disease manifestation. People may not realize that females are diagnosed on average two years later for the same disease than, than males. So there continues to be this sort of sex agnostic approach to healthcare. And then when we consider and overlay the lesbian gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, um, two-spirit folks, um, they're more likely to, exper to experience these health uh, inequalities with experiences of victimization and discrimination compounded by stigma. So uh, that's the intro. This is a huge conversation, <laughs> but I appreciate, uh, Dale, that you're willing to kind of go to that place today um, on your podcast. Yeah. No, and thank you, Beth, for providing that as a, an opening context for us. So the other part, I guess, that I mentioned in my intro is so, you know, we use the words EDI more broadly speaking uh, as a catch-all for so many things, but we've seen so many different permutations of it. And, you know, I I really like the way that you've you've added the J and the plus in there to create this this uh, non-Star Wars character, the Jedi plus. But um, maybe you could sort of talk about why that's important to you and what it means. Yeah, that's great. And and I know it confuses a lot of people, but yes, everybody sort of gets gets this uh, picture of a, of a Jedi. But again, I want to em emphasize that I'm not a social justice expert. However, many are explicitly calling on social justice within EDI, and in fact, calling EDI social justice. So you'll see EDI or DEI, but EDI in particular references Jedi Plus, which is the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Having said that, um, I really just want to suggest and encourage that using the words themselves versus the acronym in healthcare, we have this 
uh, good or bad uh, habit to rely mm -hmm. on acronyms. And while they're useful for quick um, representation of concepts, we have to be careful not to render the words and in meaning invisible. So when it comes to justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, we need to be explicit. Each has its own specific specificities um, and differences. So we really just need to be careful not to lose sight of yeah. what those abbreviations stand for. And JEDI, uh, there's been a lot of conversations lately. Yes, justice is important. We need to add it. But to not get wrapped up into the theme of Star Wars, because this is not a fictional um, situation. These are real people and, and real lives who are impacted by the work that we do. Yeah, and it's a great reminder. So um, so maybe I, I know a lot of your recent and ongoing work brings in the lens of trauma into the conversation, which I, I think is really important. So what does this add to our understanding and, and how does it provide a path forward for us? Mm. Well, that's a great question too. And we have talked about it a little bit before. So I think most of your listeners are people engaged in healthcare. Um, you know, trauma informed practice has long been a part uh, of mental health and substance use. And I think many of us have tip frameworks um, or models of care within our organizations or service deliveries or are building them and putting them out. We know it's really, really important. Um, but when I was working within patient-oriented research, um, we have ethics on the front side of research, like where it comes to participants and subjects. Mm -hmm. But at the time, patient-oriented research relatively new here in Canada, just entering its second five-year phase of funding. But other than recommendations on working with teams or tips and engagement, my experience really was that we lacked understanding and awareness of how patient public engagement and research in particular can activate trauma, both for the patient public partners, but also the researchers. So storytelling, as we know, tends to be the entry point to patient partnerships, but often these stories are hard to tell and they're hard to hear, especially if we think about quality improvement, if it has the underpinning of healthcare harm. So I was super fortunate to work with Marika Sandrelli out of Mental Health Substance Use uh, in Fraser Health in BC, who's really leading this work in this conversation. And we saw an opportunity, and Marika's team in particular saw an opportunity to evolve TIP, the trauma-informed practice, into trauma-resiliency-informed trauma practice or principles, really around this piece around activating resiliency be more of a strength-based approach. So at the time I took the opportunity to collaborate with Marika and we built out the TRIP curricula into a specific module for patient public engagement. So that's how it sort of all, all came about. But I think it's really important, um, Dale, that we understand and we're starting to understand, I hate to use the C word, but COVID really, COVID really highlighted this. It's important to understand that we have trauma organized systems. Uh, Dr. Sandra Bloom's been doing a lot of work in this area. So just as the lives of people exposed to repetitive and chronic trauma um, more often are historically underserved populations, they become organized around those trauma experiences. So too can our entire services. So our organizations and systems, they become organized around this recurrent and severe stresses. So we're living systems. We're a sector whose predominant product is healthcare provided by people um, and if you consider your organization or area, um, they're alive, they're living, breathing environments, and they're vulnerable to stress, chronic repetitive stress. So it's really important that we that we bring this idea of trauma resiliency informed practice or this lens of trauma into our workplace, because evidence shows crisis driven organizations um, do sacrifice, you know, communication networks, feedback loops, all these different areas. And and COVID really was a perfect storm to sort of highlight that we need to start looking at our work, the work that we're doing and the impact that we have in communities uh, under this lens of trauma. It's fascinating. So 
just so maybe I understand or maybe get, uh, ask if you could give an example or, or what that looks like, because are you talking about a service within the health system? Or are you talking about the health system itself as in the context of like structural uh, discrimination and things like that? Well, the systems itself were built on these historical frameworks that are going to continue to to oppress. And so that itself causes causes uh, trauma. But Dr. Sandra Bloom has done a lot of work in this area. And we started doing um, trauma resiliency informed practice in Fraser. And a lot of our early interventions showed that we can we can improve our health, our health workforce. We can improve the environment of working and thus we can improve our services that we're providing. But when we think of trauma, it happens at every every level. It happens within us, it happens within our clients and our and our patients, it happens at a systems level, within interpersonal levels. Uh, and again, Dr. Sandra Broom and uh, Bloom and Dr. Um, Joel Brown have done a lot of work in that area. I really encourage people to take a look at some of the work that they're doing. Thank you. Um, so I, I, I guess part of it also what you're saying resonates with me because I know I was quite sensitive, um, and also sensitized, um, in inviting, you know, a spokesperson like yourself, you know, onto the, uh, onto the podcast that I don't, you know, unwittingly, you know, create trauma or, or ask questions that, that, that hurt, um, you know, cause I, and I was reminded, right. That this is not a hypothetical conversation for people, right. This is their lived experience um, that, and um, so I, I think it's that that's some of what you're describing as well, that those that are interacting with the health system and having these conversations um, it, it isn't an abstract thing or it, it is them. Yeah, can you you want to rephrase that question a little bit, Dale? Sure. That I guess that for or those just explain that, it a little bit further. Yeah. So that for those that are I guess interacting with the health system, mm -hmm. um, and being engaged in these kinds of conversations, um, that it is that they're not I guess um, neutral parties that mm -hmm. are talking about things in the abstract they're talking about their own lives um and everything that comes with it and so even a curious question um can bring with it a, a bunch of other things yeah no i know that's very true and i think in some of the work that we've been doing especially around gender diversity inclusion um and i think it's like this in a lot of the work that that historically how we've trained healthcare workers is to separate self from work but i think if we're looking at uh, EDI, DEI, JEDI, whatever term you want to, when you want to look at, I come to work, I'm queer, I'm non-gender conforming. I don't leave that the minute I walk into my, my office. I'm coming with my intersecting identities. Uh, you know, people and patients and people in, in, in community that we're, that we're serving are coming with these intersecting identities. You can't remove one from the other. So I do think it's really important that we're aware that uh, these conversations and the interactions that we have do become quite personal, and I and I know there's some pushback around that in some in some health organizations or some institutions. But I think it's really important that we have that understanding. We're all coming to the table with these intersecting identities, and then how do we relate? What are our interpersonal connections within that? If we're coming to the to the forefront with who we are in our whole authentic self. Thank you. Um... So I, I think sort of building on that, I mean, you're, I know this conversation around gender and sexuality is as personal and individual as it comes. Um, so how do we bring, I guess, again, that systems approach into our discussions and 
our current and and how our current systems are organized, I guess, in a bit more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think it goes back to my my comment, really, in understanding about these trauma organized systems, and and you know, as an example, in her research, Bloom recorded that the effect of chronic and repetitive stress on on social service and caregiving organizations is that these workplaces tend to have problems that parallel or mirror the problems of their clients. So I think it's really important that that research and that evidence is starting to grow and build over the last decade. So as a result, organizations that are chronically crisis driven and hyper aroused lose the capacity to manage their emotions, for lack of a better word, institutionally. So this is a, this results in a failure to learn from experience. So if you consider quality and quality improvement, if we have a trauma organized system that's in a chronically crisis driven and hyper aroused um, place, how are we going to do quality improvement and who is going to be affected by that lack of work uh, when we're in those, in those areas? So organizations, they kind of go through organizational amnesia. So knowledge that they formerly gained uh, tends to be systematically lost. And that is evidence based. But in my own area of expertise or experience, you know, I still see historical frameworks, be it funding models. Uh, we can look at how policies are being developed, even our engagement program and programs and services delivery, facility design, uh, technology that continue and will continue to oppress hardly reached communities. Uh, another example is we have these convening grants. They're 12 months in length and we're expected to bring together hardly reached, traditionally underserved, continually harmed communities and complete these projects within 12 months. If you want to create trust and repair harm with our communities, it is likely going to take more than 12 months, yet we get cut off. So we're all, so all we're doing is perpetuating the problem and risking harm Again, I mean, I look at I look at within our systems of change or within our healthcare systems that want to change, you know, people are starting to open up DEI offices or hire DEI staff or develop DEI programs or departments. But you know what? Like, there's maybe one, maybe two, if we're lucky, three staff. So there's this expectation that if we just open this department or program, you know, that we'll be able to have an impact in DEI and grow DEI within our healthcare systems and have this embedded approach to how we do healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, but if you think of that, again, our health authorities and our organizations are mirroring the repressive behavior that exists in our communities. So what we're doing in our communities, we're just mirroring that with how we're actually trying to do systems change. So we really need to have that hard look. And I just challenge organizations that to make a strong commitment to DEI just needs a strong, comprehensive, empowered program, but it needs to include funding them appropriately. And that's when we're gonna see true intention and commitment, I think, with the change that we're looking for. Yeah, and so it's not going to be one episodic. It's not just checking a box. Um, and I think some of what you're just describing, I, I think back to you know messages that we hear from sort of First Nations Indigenous communities, right, that have been interacting with our government agencies right over the years, and that there's that level of constant distrust because there's promises or things done and then they stop they get erased and right so i think that sort of parallels i think what you're describing even at the organizational level absolutely 110 percent um and i think the other uh, word that that jumped out at me as you were sort of uh, describing that um is the use of the word hardly reached groups um mm -hmm. i was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on that a bit more uh, i find that an, also a, a powerful <laughs> way of describing that yeah, well, I think, 
you know, we're super lucky here in BC. We have Harlan Pruden, who's absolutely extraordinary out of the BC CDC here, Center for Disease Control. And, and during COVID, he created a BC CDC language guide. And for me, it was one of the most enlightening guides that we've had in a long time to sort of, I hate to use the word, but combat or support, uh, perhaps is a better word, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. And in that, he discusses language. Language matters. And if that's the only message to get across in this episode is language matters matters. So we use the term hard to reach communities and a lot of the work that we're doing in healthcare. But think about that hard to reach. That's putting the responsibility and the onus on that community and that and that group of people versus changing the language to hardly reached. That puts the onus on us. We're we're underserving populations. So just changing those languages and, and how we speak about different communities, you know, goes a long way. It's like we talk about lived experience. Any of us know if we have an experience, it's not a lived experience, especially in healthcare, if we have chronic complex disease, it's a living experience. And just changing slightly some of that language may help organizations and, and leaders, you know, reframe the work that they're doing with community groups that are hardly reached. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And it, it does inspire me to think that we should probably do another episode just on powers of language. But yeah, language, it, it, yeah, yeah. But it is something that comes up in, in lots of these kinds of spaces. Uh, and certainly in the, you know, the the people-centered side of things about you know doing things with as opposed to two or four and mm -hmm. right those pronoun or uh, those um prepositions right carry a lot of power um and they organize how we think and, and interact um so maybe we could just sort of i guess uh pick on that a little bit more um because i i in preparing for this sort of this conversation, I, I come back to, you know, one of my very favorite poets and one of her favorite poems around Margaret Atwood. And she talks about um, in her poem, a word after a word after a word is power um, mm -hmm. and really brings back that construct about the power of words. And I think you've emphasized that throughout our discussion here today around even not using acronyms so that we recognize the power of the words that are in them. So, I know that there's a lot of movement around in terms of language about our declaring our pronouns as part of this um, and the power of those words um, and those pronouns. Um, so, so I get why some people are doing it. Um, me being, you know, an English nerd, um, struggle <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, and so I was just wanting to get your perspective on that. I mean, the the, the move to do it, the, the the move that others don't do it, um, and maybe sort of elaborate on this. Mm -hmm. Well, there's two pieces to that, Dale. Well, you being an English nerd, so you'll understand. Um, <laughs> you know, historically, if we look at historical literature, uh, there actually were no gender pronouns. It was they, them um, at the time. And then it evolved to... to uh, he him um and she her and then it evolved to he him uh you know so then everything really became genderized to the male um you know sort of gender in our in our literature and then at some point in time liberation came and you know we we're trying to take back our power as as a as women and then now again with pronouns coming out i i and this is again i'm not an expert in this by any means but again it's about taking back power uh, and, and pronouns, you know, is a way for people to do that. Having said that, I think like many people and, and 
I definitely struggle with pronouns, even my own, uh, never mind anybody else's. And organizations, you're right, have really leaned into everyone declaring their pronouns. And again, if you look at the history, while I think it's important, and if people choose to do that in order to take back their power, um, and in meetings and, and in our work, it can definitely identify allies or lend to sort of the space uh, feeling safe. It is a way of declaring this is a safe space. You can be who you want to be. Um, I'm really not a believer that it has to be forced or, or mandated. I don't share my pronouns unless I am confident in the space I'm about to enter. So mm -hmm. mandating pronoun declaration can in fact harm and often it forces some people to come out or if they happen to be the only they them in the room, uh, unfortunately uh, we can consciously and unconsciously create the burden of representation for that that person when we're asking for pronouns. So again, it's not an easy, easy answer. This work is not easy. It's prickly and it takes us to really look at and have these conversations. But when it comes to, to patients, again, organization, organizations really, even or for employees, we need to back it up and first ask, like, why are we asking pronouns? Is it going to improve care? Is it necessary for medical treatment? Uh, have I provided a safe space to be asking that question? Um, do I and my team have training specific to that population. So again, leaning into trauma resiliency informed services, it really is about placing priority on the person's safety choice and control. And I think it's like that with this entire conversation. The other piece I want to I want to be mindful of, because something that I've just sort of learned a little bit more about the last couple of years uh, in the work that I'm doing is it's not about muting, um, you know, female sex or gender or things like that, or male sex and gender. This is about being gender additive. So we need to be really mindful that women and girls continue to be oppressed around the world. So it's important that we continue mm -hmm. using gendered language, but consider the approach of pronouns as an in addition to. And again, it just comes down to the principles of, of social change, which are which are really, and we've talked about this, uh, you know, agency, which is choice and, and access and action, but agency and choice and safety and control really for any work in DEI have to be the leading principles. Yeah, so that we don't th do things, I guess, passively, right, that they're done in, with intention and understand the implications of, of action or even sometimes, I guess, of inaction, um, yeah. that it does have a consequence, uh, desired or otherwise. Correct. Um, so speaking, so I guess going back from you know, the individual and our individual agency, you know, we talk a lot um, around the role of healthcare leaders in the space um, and then that organizational framework. So maybe from your perspective, what is their role and their, what is their additiveness um, to this or um, what can they do? Well, I mean, I think it's a great question. We know that, you know, a lot of social action starts from the grassroots, but leadership, uh, in particular executive leadership, have, have a lot of roles and responsibilities in there. But really, at the end of the day, Dale, really, and at the beginning of, the, of your podcast, you talked about yourself and you situating yourself in the conversation and being aware of that. So it starts with us as individuals, right? The personal, even as in leadership and leading groups and organizations, assessing our own readiness, which really comes down to willingness to look in the mirror and see where we are on the socioeconomic ladder, understanding mm -hmm. our own privilege. I mean, that's how you set up this conversation. So it isn't easy, right? No one wants to look in the mirror and have that personal conversation, but that really is where it starts in leadership. If we go back to our, our intro, I'm queer, non-gender conforming, 
but I'm a white person of privilege. I have access and agency. So the idea of we have to do the work before we do the war work. So an example in practice is in, in BC, Travis uh, Salway, Dr. Salway has a mind map BC. It's a mental health service for uh, 2S LGBTQ communities, but any service provider who wants to be listed has to go through a bit of a self questionnaire or a survey. And it's not necessarily, and this is what I really sort of want to bring home is, it's not necessarily what you know in regard to equity, diversity, inclusion, but what are you willing to learn? Is there a willingness to learn about other? And how are we doing that in the work that we're doing? We know how healthcare works, right? So shifts or change, especially around culture, often impact those who are on the bottom rung within our within our organization. So in my own leadership growth, um, you know, even though I'm part of the community, I went from being an ally, which is sort of walking next to somebody within my work, uh, you know, personally and professionally, to an advocate. I had an incredibly sick daughter and became an advocate for her care and an advocate for the people within my own queer community. And now as my leadership has stretched and grown in my experience and my knowledge is really now about being a steward, which in leadership, creating this environment for which means executive sponsorship maybe of DEI groups, ongoing participation, you know, this piece around learning and, and self-reflection. And I think we think of leadership as leading everybody else, but when it comes to DEI, equity, diversity, inclusion, leadership really is about self-reflection and understanding where we are and assessing our own willingness and readiness to do this work and, and to really become uncomfortable. Yeah, and and I think it's an important part of even like the the leadership education that we ourselves provide right the and we provide it in the construct of the the leads framework right that first letter around leading self but it is the part that many people find the most fascinating part of their leadership learning journey because mm -hmm. they haven't set they haven't with intention never sat down and reflected on who they are um, and their leadership or the leadership styles or Right, their biases and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it becomes important to being able to lead others if you can't reflect on who you are. But the other part that you described, I think, in there that is a is a message that we've been hearing a lot more about is that that natural curiosity, genuineness about learning about others too. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's important too that as we're doing this work and we're learning about ourselves and we're learning about others, the personal, the interpersonal. Um, you know, sort of the service cultures as those sort to, you know, translate into other areas of our work. Um, one of the things that we really uh, practice and, and uh, Marika Sandrelli always says to me, practice makes practice, uh, is, this piece <laughs> around, is this piece around mindful self-compassion. Self so leading, again, leading into sort of the trip work that we do, uh, it's so important that while we're doing our, our, our work, uh, that we do the self-work as well, that we need to be kind to ourselves uh, in this process. And what does that look like when we're doing that? And we're not going to get it right. And that's okay. And and having having that piece around curiosity and humility within the, the aspects of collaboration within our teams, just to be kind and gentle to ourselves in the process. Yeah. And so, yeah, the fear of being imperfect shouldn't stop us from taking that journey. Um, and I And I think that is very nicely said in terms of being kind to ourselves because yes we're not going to be perfect and and learning is that journey for sure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i guess one of the other questions i would have in this space then is around that the way we use these labels and and definitions um and right for me it, it's sometimes as we're talking about 
the singularity of different groups and individuals within that space and the sensitivities that need to come with it, that we we get into, I guess, a debate or I hear others sort of get into this debate almost between the forest and the trees, um, right, of looking at the individuals, right, but at the same time talking about the um, the larger whole about who we are and our humanity. Um, what is your reflection on that and how that fits into this conversation? And I think that's a conversation that's happening a lot right now around changing um, experience into human experience and, and how does that impact our organization? How do we frame that within our organizations? But I think I think they're really at the end of the day, just like equity, diversity, inclusion, or adding that justice piece in, there really isn't a one size fits all approach. And I think that's really hard in healthcare. We mm -hmm. want algorithms and systems and process because we do think about healthcare harm. We do think about inequities. We do think about quality improvement. And they often take these very stiff uh, processes and frameworks in order for us to do that work well. However, with EDI or social justice in healthcare, it's really about, um, it's funny, we do these trip workshops and I often think people think we're talking about stuff that's foo-foo, um, to use a non-medical term. <laughs> really it's a, you know, but really it's about developing a cognitive scaffolding. So a culture of developmental learning. It isn't a one and done situation. This is an ongoing iterative process of learning. So equity, diversity, inclusion, you know, and being explicit, like when we're talking about equity, diversity, inclusion, talk about anti-racism, you know, talk about gender equity, sexuality, like be explicit, which maybe that's the trees. Um, but again, this work isn't a one and done. It's ongoing. It's iterative process of learning, doing and being. Um, and it all goes without saying that all of this needs to incorporate those with living experiences within our communities and within our staff. We have diverse staff and we need to look at that as well as we're designing systems of change and ensuring that we have this co-creative sort of co-developed frameworks for any DEI work that we're doing. And, and you mentioned forests and trees, but you know, there's a whole ecosystem within those trees and forests, uh, you know, and they all work symbiotically. And that is the lens I would love to see in reference to DEI uh, and sex and gender is, is we all need to work together to do this. And there are a lot of uh, pieces that are, that are at the microscopic level that mm -hmm. feed those forest and trees, uh, but they can also create a lot of harm if we don't tend to them in ways that we know and that we start to understand. Yeah, well, I, I can relate having visited Gabriola Island that uh, <laughs> how important that ecosystem is. So <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, but the other part that you described there is is around right the I guess it, it comes back to that system question again, right around the processes that are in place because you know the it, it you know the health systems are large complex systems intended to move a lot of people through as quickly, um, effectively and, and affordably to, to, right, um, as possible. And so those processes are put in place to sort of enable that, but that causes some, I guess, what we're sort of talking about, that causes some of this harm um, and trauma in the process. Yeah, no, for sure it does. And I think, you know, we have these big systems, but I think there are pockets that we can change. I think there are things that we can do uh, we can audit our, our sex and gender diversity and inclusiveness within our organizations and just start somewhere having these conversations and just know that you're not going to get it right, that it's it's going to be hard. It's going to be long work. Make sure it's inclusive of the communities that we're talking about um, and work hard to reach those hardly 
hardly reach populations. So a lot of things that we can do, we can look at our, our interactions that we have within our healthcare system. We can, we can look at how our services and programs are designed. Um, you know, what is our space and equipment like for, for other people within our community and how to make them more inclusive. So yes, it's a huge uh, thing to undertake, but I think, it, I think it's doable. One of the things that, you know, we added the R to the trip work that we're doing, and that's the resiliency piece. And I know sometimes, you know, as a caregiver for many, many years as well, is that in healthcare, resiliency sometimes is an excuse to overlay more work or burden onto our shoulders. And I've seen that and heard that in a lot of the talking and in, in the programs that we've been we've been facilitating. But when we think about resiliency, we all have it. And in order to do this work, it's about, and especially in a position of leadership, it's about activating resiliency. And activating resiliency has sort of three components. It's it's caring connectedness, opportunities to contribute, and clarity of expectations. It sounds so simple, but that framework really is a starting point for many of our conversations in doing this hard work that, that evidence shows has been quite quite successful. That's a good, uh, a good tie up to a lot of what we've been talking about, Bev. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add to the conversation before we close off or? Um... No, just for people, you know, be scared, but don't be scared. So, you know, it is, it is hard, it's hard work, but just like you entered this conversation with, with me today, Dale, is you, you laid it out there. You, you looked at yourself and where you sit on that ladder before this conversation, as did I, um, and understand that, that even you and I are lens together. It's very, very narrow. Um, and, uh, in order to do this work and to really improve healthcare, especially for our hardly reached populations. Uh, we need to start doing this work as, as hard as it's going to be, but um, you know, at the end of the day, it'll, it'll just create a better system for all of us. Thank you. A good final message, Bev. Um, thank you for being a guest uh, here on the HQ today and for really, I think, helping all of us to better understand uh, this issue, both in the context of gender and sexuality, but I think these are lessons that can be applied to all aspects of healthcare um, and all those that we serve. So thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the HQ and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.